Sebastopol Christian Church. To learn more about our ministry, go to our website, sebchristian.com. I've decided that on the first Sunday of every month, we're going to bring up our vision statement and just remind ourselves what we're all about. Uh, I think sometimes the church can get into what we call drift. We can just sort of start sliding one way or another, and we start saying, what is our church all about? And this is sort of brings us back to our true north, to the direction that we believe that God wants us to go as a congregation. So it says about us, Sebastopol Christian Church exists to build a family of hope-filled followers of Jesus who bring others into a growing relationship with our Creator. 24 words. Not that hard to say. You can memorize it if you memorize it. I I don't know. I think I have a piece of candy that I can give you (laughs) as a reward. I think it'd be awesome if you came up and said, I know it, I know it. Just like people know Bible verses. Anyway, there's three things I just want to highlight about our mission statement. First of all, it says that we are a family. We're a family and we're united by our faith and our common trust in Jesus Christ. Second, we are hope-filled. We look forward. We think the future is as bright as the promises of God. We are heaven-bound through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have the hope that God is bringing His kingdom into this world through his people, through this community, this local congregation that we call Sebastopol Christian. So God is on the move. Jesus is building his kingdom, and that gives us hope. And then third, we are to be active because it says we are hope-filled followers of Jesus who bring others. In other words, salvation, that new relationship that we have with Christ is not just to be hoarded. It's not just to be kept to ourselves. It's not to hide it under a a bushel. No, we're going to let it shine. So we want to be active to bring everyone that we know into a growing relationship with God, the God who made us, the God who now wants wants to redeem us through Jesus Christ. So that's our vision statement, and that's keep to true north. Amen? All right, we are in the middle of a series called Resolute based upon a passage in Luke's gospel, chapter 9 and verse 51, where it says, Jesus, he says, knowing that soon he was going to be taken up into heaven, it says, Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to the cross, knowing that he was going to be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Jesus was on his way there. Last week, we talked about prayer. We talked about sometimes the disappointment that we have in prayer when we pray some prayers and we hope that God will answer the prayers according to our will. Sometimes I pray this. I don't pray it out loud, but I still think, Lord, uh, I want my will to be done here. And I say, our will be done when I ask this prayer request. And sometimes God answers our prayers. He always answers our prayers, but he sometimes doesn't answer our prayers the way that we want him to answer our prayers. Sometimes the answer is going to be one of the following. The answer may be yes. We say yes and praise the Lord. I want some more, please. Uh, Sometimes the answer is no. We're asking with the wrong motives. We're asking with the wrong frame of mind. uh, We don't have our heart right with God. Uh, For instance, when uh, James and John asked Jesus, can we call down fire on this village that rejected you? I mean, that is not according to God's will. Jesus... He said, I didn't come into this world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So Jesus answered that, no. 
Uh, sometimes the answer is wait, and sometimes the answer is grow. And during the waiting, I think God uh, wants us to grow. Sometimes He wants us to continue to pray and to not give up. He wants us to have that shameless persistence in prayer, like we saw that guy last week, where he wouldn't stop knocking on the door of his neighbor until his neighbor gave him what he was asking for to help his guest with the loaves of bread. So now we come to another passage in Scripture. We're coming to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 30, 39 through 44. And we're going to uh, be talking about some woes in Scripture. We're going to be talking about, it could be, if you want to personalize it, you can say, woe is you if. Woe is you if, or you can say, woe to the hypocrites. Let's go to God and ask his blessing on the message today. Heavenly Father, we look to you to be our teacher and our guide. We ask that your Holy Spirit be poured out and just come and take control of this congregation right now, this sanctuary dedicated as a house of prayer and worship to you. Lord, we pray that the Lord Jesus would be lifted up and draw all people to himself. Lord, we pray that whatever the words that are said, Lord, help us to learn them and understand them and take them to heart. Lord, help us to be changed, to be more like your son as a result of being here today. So Lord, we give this time to you now. Glorify your servant Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. So do you know what a woe is in scripture? Because I will tell you, it is not just a command to stop your horse. But I'm fine. Do you like that one, Gene? All right. Anyway, one of the translations, for example, the New Living Translation for woe is how terrible it will be for you if. How terrible it will be for you if. This is not an easy passage of Scripture. I didn't choose it easily. It's not one of those feel-good messages. It's one of those messages that are, that are supposed to rock us back on our heels and help us to take stock of ourselves and sort of say like, one of those disciples next to Jesus, you know, when he says, one of you will betray me, and he says, Lord, is it I? Is it I? We don't want to be one of these people that Jesus is talking against. Jesus begins this passage in Luke's gospel, and he's going to lay out six woes where he just lays out the religious leaders and the scholars of his day, the people that are supposed to be leading the people of God toward a closer relationship with God. And he lays out six woes against them based upon a lunch meeting or a dinner meeting that he was having at the house of a Pharisee. So he begins his woes by responding to a Pharisee who was a religious leader of his day in the land of Israel. The Pharisee was surprised because he invites Jesus to this meal. Jesus sits down for the meal and the Pharisee notices. And he says, hey, Jesus, you didn't wash your hands, you didn't do this ceremonial, ceremonial cleansing before the meal. You didn't sit down and do that. You're sort of breaking the rules here. And he doesn't say it, but he's thinking this uh, because in the Pharisee's mind, when you, when you washed your hands before the meal, you were washing away that which was unclean, that which would, when you went out into the world and you were contaminated by unclean things in the world, you needed to wash your hands before you had a meal. Now, that, that is a command of the Pharisees. It wasn't in the law of God. It wasn't in the Torah or the law of Moses. It's something that the Pharisees added later on. And so Jesus, uh, because it wasn't in the law of God, he just decided, I don't need to do that. But the Pharisee says, wait a minute, you're breaking 
a law. And, and by this point, the traditions of the Pharisees had become equivalent to the law of God. And so the Pharisee says, you're, basically, you're breaking a command. You're breaking a, a command that God gave to us. And so Jesus is going to respond to this. And it's interesting because he responds to the question about washing his hands, and then he just keeps on going. It's like he says, and I got some more things I want to say to you while, while we're talking about it. So it says this in verse 39. It says, then the Lord, talking about Jesus, because that's the way Luke referred to Jesus many times in the gospel in the book of Acts. It says, then the Lord said to him, now then you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. It reminds me when you go over to Mark's gospel in chapter seven, they were asking Jesus about eating and eating foods that were clean or unclean. And Jesus was even talking about food in this passage. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Matthew's gospel later on, Jesus adds that, and he says it's, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So we need to check more on what's inside of our heart coming out than we need to be worried about what's outside of our lives coming in. Jesus being the sinless, spotless son of God, you know, he would think about, you'd think he would think about walking around this earth and making sure being the holy son of God that he wouldn't be made unclean or that he wouldn't be contaminated by the things in this world that are unclean or by people in this world who are wicked and evil that somehow he needed to stay away from those people because he might be contaminated by them. That was the attitude of the Pharisees. Jesus had a completely opposite attitude. Jesus is like Mr. Clean, and Jesus is, is not only like Mr. Clean, but instead of being contaminated by the rest of the world, Jesus the one is the one who everyone is around him and listens to him are made clean by him. He decontaminates the world instead of being contaminated by the world. Hallelujah. I love that about our Savior. He's not so much worried about saying, oh, you're going to make me dirty. It's Jesus is saying, come to me and I'll make you clean. To the Pharisees, and, and, and now he's talking about the poor too, because he says, but now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Because to the, to the Pharisees, talking about unclean again, the poor were poor because somehow they were being punished by God for some sin they, they had committed. And if the poor were poor because God was punishing them, then why should we help them? We're sort of getting in God's way of punishing them. In fact, that mentality is very active in the world today among almost a billion people who call themselves Hindu. Most of them live in the land of India. But they have this whole caste system based upon the idea of karma, based upon the idea of somewhere in a past life, you either lived well or you lived very badly and you're either being rewarded by getting a higher life in the next life or you're being punished by getting a lower life and more suffering. And so the, to the poor who are suffering, the Hindus would say, don't, don't do anything to help those people because they got to work out their karma. They got to work out their punishment by God. And Jesus is saying, you, do, you don't have to have, have that attitude at all. 
You need to be clean on the outside and the inside, and you need to be generous to the poor. So the antidote to greed, because part of what keeps, makes us want to keep stuff for ourselves and not be generous to the poor is this idea of greed, of mine, 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 just a little bit more, collect a little bit more, get all I can and then can all that I get. You know, that's, that's where greed steps in. And Jesus said, you, don't be greedy. Don't be idolatrous. Be generous to the poor. The antidote to being greedy is to be generous. So now Jesus says to this, so he's, he's like saying, you need to clean the, the inside of the cup as well as the outside of the cup. So that's the first thing he starts off with. But now that, now that Jesus is on a roll, uh, he says, you know what? Now that I'm on the subject of being clean and unclean, and whether or not I follow your man-made religious regulations, I've got a few more things that I want to say to you, to you Pharisees, to you religious leaders. So you know what? Brace yourselves, because here it comes. And so what Jesus says next are what we call the six woes of condemnation in Luke's gospel in chapter 11. Now remember, a woe is it's not a good thing. You don't want God saying woe to you. You don't want those revelation uh, passages when you read when it says woe because the judgments of God are coming. Woe means you're in big trouble with God. How terrible it will be for you. So the first woe is this. Woe to you Pharisees, you religious leaders, you scholars of the day, you people who think you're so close to God. It says, woe to you Pharisees because you give a tenth, you give God a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. You know, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome when you stop about it and say, these guys tithe everything. They give a tenth of their income to God. They even go out to their garden and they start looking through their parsley and their thyme and their basil and they start going one-tenth to God, one-tenth to God, and they're separating it all out. And you're saying, these people are, are very religious and committed to God. And Jesus is saying, this is how religious you are, and yet look what you're not doing. You're, doing, you're, you're getting down to the minutest detail of tithing whatever you have to God. But look what you are neglecting. You neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So giving a tenth of everything of what we own, that's what the Bible calls tithing. It means a tenth. And the Pharisees, they were sticklers for tithing. They, it was, they were very disciplined religiously when it came to tithing. And Jesus is saying, what I think he's saying here, it says, hey, it's good to give to God like that. It's, it's don't, but don't just give financially to God and then go and neglect the weightier matters of the law. Don't go out and have no love for people. Don't go out and let injustice have the day. It says, don't give money, but then have no love in your heart for any other people. So tithing is a good thing. Tithing blesses God. Tithing blesses other people. Tithing blesses you, but only really when it is done combined with love. So that's the first, the first woe was about tithing. The second woe is this. Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues. You know, I look around the church today. I, you would think the most important seats would be in the front row. But you know, you got to get here really late in order to have to sit in the front row in this church. Most people get here early so they can get a back row seat. I, I don't quite understand that. I don't really spit that much when I speak. But it's, it's just the habit of this church. 
But thinking about banquets and parties and the seats of honor, you know, and who you're sitting next to and this whole pecking order socially of the day. And the Pharisees were really into this. They were into who's who and who is not in the religious pecking order. And it says, you love the most important seats in the synagogues. You love the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Oh, how they love to be honored in public. Uh, they wanted to be right next to it, the seats in the synagogue, right next to where the books of the Torah were kept. They love the perks of their position as religious leaders. But you know what their problem is? They didn't seem to love the main responsibility of their teaching positions. You're supposed to be religious teachers. Your job is to teach God's word to God's people. Your job is to live out a godly life as an example to the rest of the people of God. And they didn't seem to really want to humble themselves and serve and teach the people so much as they wanted the people to honor them. So beware of that. Like, I want to be honored by everybody instead of I want to serve and do God's will to help other people. That attitude is wrong. So that's the second woe. Let's go on to the third woe. Woe to you, verse 44. Woe to you because you're like unmarked graves which people walk over without even knowing it. Now you got to know something about the Jewish culture here. Uh, having a grave where a dead person was, that was considered very unclean. And, if, and nobody who was considered religiously clean or pure could go around that. And Jesus is saying, look, you guys are walking around like your unmarked graves. Whoever's coming in contact with you, they're getting unclean. You think you're avoiding everything else unclean, but your attitude, you are making yourselves like unmarked graves. You are becoming unclean to everyone around them. They're making them unclean with their influence. So that's woe number three. Let's go to woe number four. Jesus replied to them, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Can you imagine the, the responsibility of the, of the religious teachers of the day? They were supposed to teach God's word to God's people. They were supposed to model a godly life for God's people. Like Paul would say, therefore imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? That, that's the, the role of the religious leader in the society. And it says instead what they were doing, they were taking God's laws and they were adding to them with their traditions of the elders and the Pharisees. And they were loading people down with these burdens that the people around them trying to fulfill God's law saying, well, you Pharisee says this is the way we're supposed to live. You're making it so difficult to keep the laws that, that it felt like a heavy burden on people's back. And that's maybe one reason why Jesus would say, therefore, come to me, all you are who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Because they felt that weight of the law and the, and the traditions of the elders and the Pharisees. They felt it on their, on their shoulders and they couldn't carry it anymore. And he says, and here's the worst part about it. You're laying all that burden on everybody else and you're not even willing to lift a finger to help them carry that burden. Now that's sad. Making God's word so complicated, making it so difficult to keep that it's like nobody around can keep them, and then you beat them over the head for not being able to keep the commands of God. 
That's not what uh, Jesus wanted the religious leaders of the day to do, is to make God's word so convoluted or so complicated that God's people couldn't even understand. You know, one of the reasons why I believe Dr. Billy Graham, who's died just recently and went to heaven and they had a funeral for him on Friday, one of the reasons why I think Dr. Billy Graham was so amazingly powerfully used by God in his generation was that he spoke the gospel message and he made it clear. He made it simple. He made it understandable. People listening who didn't even know much about the Bible, they could understand what God wanted from their life based upon the message that Dr. Billy Graham was saying. Uh, it was, it's awesome about him. In fact, Dr. Albert Moeller, I was reading a, a tribute that he wrote. He's a president of a seminary. He I was reading this week a fitting tribute that he gave to Billy Graham, and, and he said at one point that Billy Graham's task wasn't mass evangelism. Billy Graham said, my task is personal evangelism on a mass scale. And that's why people could be sitting in the audience with Billy Graham, and he could be talking to thousands of people. Like I watched this one video, he was at Yankee Stadium in 1957, and 100,000 people came from New York City to see Dr. Billy Graham in Yankee Stadium, and when he spoke, it was as if he was talking to an individual, 100,000 people at a time. Now, I don't know if you got a chance to see this. I tweeted this out. I said, don't miss this. I'm watching it right now. Anybody get to a TV if you can and watch the funeral for Dr. Billy Graham. Did anybody get a chance to see that funeral? It was pretty amazing. They say that the best preacher in the family of all Billy Graham's five kids is his daughter, Anne Graham Lotz. And Anne Graham Lotz had some amazing words to say in tribute to her father, Dr. Billy Graham. In fact, we brought him this morning. I want you to listen. When I was a girl growing up, mother led us in family devotions every day. She read the Bible and she prayed, and that was that. When daddy was home, he led in family devotions. He read the Bible, but he didn't just read it. My daddy would stop and make a comment. He would ask a question and we would discuss the scriptures. So my mother taught me by her example to love reading my Bible every day. And my daddy taught me by his example to think about what I was reading. So about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, when my mother went to heaven, my daddy started asking me to read him the Bible. And at first it was very intimidating. And then it became such a joy. And there were times when I would sit in front of my daddy. He was hard of hearing, so I would sit in front of him knee to knee and he would ask me to give him a full 60-minute message. And he never took his eyes off my face. Once in a while, he would interrupt me and he would ask a question or we would discuss it. Um, but he loved to hear God's word. And then as he got weaker, we uh, went from 60 minutes to five to 10 minutes. But the pattern was always the same. Whoever was in the house was called to gather around him. And we did that whether he was in the kitchen or if he was in his study or more recently when he was in his bedroom. But he, we would gather around and I would explain to him why I had chosen that passage of scripture and then I would read the passage to him and I would always end by saying, Daddy, I love you. So I have, want to do that this time when we're gathered around Daddy and I want to read a passage of scripture but I want to explain to you why I have chosen this particular passage of scripture. And the reason is this, I believe from heaven's perspective that my father's death 
is as significant as his life. And his life was very significant. But I think when he died, that was something very um, strategic from heaven's point of view. And I know that before the foundations of the world were laid, February 21st, 2018 was the date that God chose to take my father home. Why? And I had a sweet friend who urged me to look that up on the web. So I looked up what was significant about that day and I found out that February 21st, 2018 is the day when Jews focus on scripture reading that focuses on the death of Moses. Moses was the great liberator. He brought people, millions of people out of bondage to slavery, got them to the edge of the promised land and God took him to heaven. And then God brought Joshua to lead them into the promised land to take them home. And my father also is a great liberator. He brought millions of people out of bondage to sin, and he gets us to the edge of heaven, the edge of the promised land, and then God has called him home. And then could it be that God is going to bring Joshua to lead us into the promised land, to lead us to heaven? And do you know what the New Testament name is for Joshua? It's Jesus. And I believe this is a shot across the bow from heaven. And I believe God is saying, wake up church, wake up world, wake up Anne. Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And Jesus said, when the gospel is preached to the whole world as it is today in the service, as it is through churches, missionaries, ministries, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, when the gospel is preached to the whole world, then the end will come. So I would like to read to you 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. I'm going to read it to you the way my mother taught me. I'll put my name in, make it personal. Then I'll read it to you the way my daddy taught me. I'll make a comment here or there. And it says, I do not want you to be ignorant, Anne, concerning those who have fallen asleep. And falling asleep is just the biblical term for when God's children die. It's just a falling asleep. It's when you close your eyes to this life, you open them to the face of Jesus. It's when your faith becomes sight. So I don't want you to be ignorant, Anne, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, and I do, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. This is God's word. It's not fantasy. It's not wish. It's not a hope so. This we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's my daddy. That's my mother. That's my husband then you and I who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And this is the comfort. There is hope for tomorrow. This life is not all there is. The best is yet to come. So I want to make a pledge to my daddy. And I pledge to you, daddy, that in view of his appearing and in front of all of these witnesses, I will preach the word. I will do the work of an evangelist, I will share the gospel, and I will run my race and live my life so that five minutes before I see Jesus, I have no regrets. I will live my life to exalt and glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I love you, Daddy. Oh, I love that lady. She is powerful. And uh, it says, 
in view of his coming, view of his appearing, preach the word, do the work of an evangelist. And that's exactly the words that Paul wrote to Timothy in the second chapter of Timothy. So the idea of, of saying, Jesus saying woe to, this, to these religious leaders of the day, he was saying woe to them because they were saying one thing and they were doing another. They were talking a talk, but they weren't walking the walk. They were being hypocrites. They were being two-faced. They were not living with integrity. So if there's anything that I get out of this message, if you say Jesus is resolutely setting his face for Jerusalem, he's also resolutely telling everybody, beginning with the religious leaders in a severe rebuke, but telling us all even today is to say, if you don't want the woe, the woe is you if, woe against the hypocrites. If you don't want that woe to apply to you, then let's do our best to live a life of integrity, to live a life of integrity. Lisa and I were talking yesterday and I was trying to come up with a hook that would help us to remember that what that means about living a life of integrity. And, and we came up with this. We said, your greatest currency is your integrity. Your greatest currency is your integrity. When people look at you and they look at your life, they're not just going to look at the words that you say. They're going to look at the life that you live. They're going to look, do you have compassion for the poor? Do you, do you have grace for those who offend you? Do you turn the other cheek? All the kind of things that Jesus said that makes a Christ follower different from the other people in the world. Because the world just says, look, if somebody loves you, you can love them back. If they don't treat you right, you don't have to treat them right. And Jesus says, no, you're to love everyone. You're to treat everyone with love and respect, no matter how they treat you. Turn the other cheek. Jesus totally modeled that. Going to the cross, he, said, he continually said, Father, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, even to the people that were crucifying him. So Jesus totally modeled that for us. And he's saying, live a life of integrity. That will make the difference in the world. There's another woe that Jesus said. It's woe number five. There's only six, so I only have two left. This one is, uh, woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets. In other words, they were God's spokesmen from the past who stood up and spoke for God, saying, thus saith the Lord, giving a revelation from God to the people of their day. And it says, oh, you Pharisees, you, you think you're so good. You build tombs for the prophets. It was your ancestors who killed them. And so you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. <laughs> because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. I think Jesus was even uh, prophesying right there because he was going to say, when I die and am raised from the dead and I go to heaven and I'm ascended into heaven. I'm telling my followers to go back to Jerusalem to pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, they will be my witnesses to the rest of the world. They will go out like apostles and prophets and evangelists to throughout the entire world. And they will not always get a friendly reception. Some of them, you, talking about the religious leaders in Israel of the day, some of them you will kill and others they will persecute. And you can read in the book of Acts, for example, Acts chapter 12, the first, uh, the first apostle to be martyred was James. The first Christian to be martyred was Stephen, being stoned there in Jerusalem to death because he stood up for Jesus against the religious leaders of his, of his day. So it's like most of the Jewish leaders 
throughout the history of the Old Testament, I'm sorry, they don't have a great track record. They hated God's prophets and messengers. They hated being called out and told to repent and humble themselves and change their ways. And this generation in Jesus' day, he's saying, you're going to be held even more responsible for your guilt than anyone else. Why? Because in Jesus' day, they weren't just rejecting a human prophet. They were rejecting God himself. They were rejecting God's anointed Messiah come to speak to them the words of life, and they rejected him and his message. And they would be guilty of murdering the Messiah and facing the terrible judgment of God. And oh, how they did in 70 AD when the Roman army came and destroyed the temple, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, broke down its walls. Half a million Jews died and another 100,000 were led into slavery. It was a terrible time of God's judgment on Israel at the time. Finally, the last woe, Jesus says this, woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you've hindered those who were trying to enter. They were obscuring the message of God's revelation with their unnecessary rules and traditions. Hearing the good news is the key of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of Christ. And these Pharisees were saying, hey, don't believe Jesus. He did, even when he does his miracles, he doesn't do them by the power of God. He does the miracles by the power of Satan. So they were obscuring the message. Jesus was the door. He was the way, the truth, and the life. And the Pharisees were trying to turn God's people away from their own Messiah. And Jesus said, it's going to be a terrible judgment for you if you do not turn around. It's terrible judgment for you if you point somebody away from the only means of salvation, from, from being saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus was resolute. He was calling out the hypocrites. He was calling out the frauds of his day. Why? Because he wants you and me to live lives of integrity, to not be hypocrites, not to be two-faced. You know, this week especially, I've, I've read lots, I've watched lots of tributes toward Dr. Billy Graham, toward his life and ministry. And the one common factor that almost everyone mentions hands down is when they meet Billy Graham in person, when they see him face to face, he is the same Billy Graham as the Billy Graham that stands up in these great pulpits, in these stadiums, in these auditoriums, speaking to over 200 million people live in his lifetime preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And they said, he's just as God-honoring at home as he was in the stadiums. John Maxwell says this. He says, when I die, what I hope is the, is the people who knew me the best are the ones who love me the most. Now, you can't have that goal in life. You cannot ever fulfill that goal in life if you do not live a life of integrity. So Jesus is telling us, be resolute and live a life of integrity. Now, how do we do that? How do you go and be less of a hypocrite? Number one, this is in your bulletin. This is a fill in the blank. Number one, always remember that you, we, you and I, we never get past this level. We never, no matter how godly we become, we never get past this, that you are always a sinner saved by grace. 
How can you be less of a hypocrite? Work with God to build your own integrity. Lord, show me the dark places in my life. Show me the places where I'm a two-faced. Show me the faces where I'm a fraud. Show me the places where I'm trying to impress other people, but I'm really not that way at all. Show me, Lord, help me to build my own integrity. Refuse to compare yourself with others. We're going to look at a parable later on in this Resolute series where this relig religious leader is praying to God and he's talking about how great he is before God, talking about his own righteousness before God. And he says, oh yeah, and by the way, I'm way better than that guy over there, right? Refuse to compare yourself and others, either neither condemning them nor envying them. Oh Lord, I can never be like so-and-so. Why not? They have the same access to God as, as you do. You have the same ability to uh, commit your ways to God's ways as they do, right? So don't compare yourself to others. And then finally, what God wants us to do is what Billy Graham did his entire life. Point everyone to our common hope of forgiveness in Jesus' day. Now, I wish I could say that the Pharisees heard these uh, six major rebukes given to them by Jesus. I wish I could say that the Pharisee says, wow, Jesus, you're right. We are such a fraud. We are so two-faced. We are so hypocritical. We need to change. Would you help us to change? I believe some of the Pharisees of Jesus' day did, as we read later on in the book of Acts, but most of them did nothing more than this. They hardened their hearts. They turned away from Jesus. And instead of listening to his truth and his message, they tried to kill the messenger. And so they began to oppose him fiercely. They began to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. And ultimately, they condemned him to death, to die a death on the cross. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey today. I don't know if you... If you've thought about what's the difference between being a person of integrity and being a person who is a hypocrite, but I hope that you would say that the, the only person who makes a difference really in the world today, the only person today who does not discredit the Christian faith and the Jesus who gave his life for us is the person who lives a life of integrity. So let's live a life of integrity. Would you pray with me? Dear God, Above all, we, we want to just be honest and transparent before you. And Lord, we might as well be because you say that you know all things. You know our hearts. There's no place we can go to hide from you. Darkness is as, as light to you. Uh, you said what we whisper in the, somebody's ear in the corner of a room will ultimately be shouted from the rooftop. So Lord, there is no, there is no hiding from you. So I pray, Father, that help us all to be honest before you, Lord, we come before you today and we say that in our heart of hearts, Lord, we don't like hypocrisy. We hate it. We hate it when we see it on other people. Lord, help us to hate seeing the hypocrisy in our own lives and in our own hearts. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to get rid of hypocrisy in our lives? Would you help us because, Lord, we need your help if we're going to change, if we're going to grow, if we're going to be more like you. Lord, sometimes we admit that we try and fool other people. We try to deceive them and make them think that somehow we're really more spiritual than in reality we are. 
Lord, we know we can never fool you. So, Lord, please search our hearts. Lord, may the, may the words of our mouth, may the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight. And may you help us live lives of integrity so that when we do speak of you, people would be willing to listen because they see this congruency. They see this matching between what we say and how we live. May you be glorified and lifted up and draw all people to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is a ministry of Sebastopol Christian Church. These messages are also available in video on our website, sebchristian.com, that is S-E-B, like boy, christian.com. If you wish to contact us, please visit our website where you will find our mailing address, phone number, and contact information at sebchristian.com. Thanks again for listening.